This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is City of Segregation, 100 Years of Struggle for Housing in Los Angeles by Andrea Gibbons. City of Segregation documents 100 years of struggle against the enforced separation of racial groups through property markets, constructions of community, and the growth of neoliberalism. This movement history covers the decades of work to end legal support for segregation in 1948, the 1960 civil rights movement and CORE's effort to integrate LA's white suburbs, and the 2006 victory preserving 10,000 downtown residential hotel units from gentrification, enfolded with an ongoing resistance to the criminalization and displacement of the homeless. Andrea Gibbons reveals the shape and nature of the racist ideology that must be fought in Los Angeles and across the United States if we hope to found just cities. City of Segregation, 100 Years of Struggle for Housing in Los Angeles by Andrea Gibbons, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Black Lives Matter is obviously a poignant slogan and a powerful force for social transformation. But it's also shorthand for a huge array of organizations nationwide, mostly led by people that you've never heard of, working the daily hard grind of ordinary organizing that stitches together spectacular mass actions into a movement. That's the subject of the new book, Making All Black Lives Matter, Reimagining Freedom in the 21st Century, written by my guest today, historian and activist Barbara Ransby. Ransby's experience as an historian and an activist provide her with a distinct perspective on today's black radical movements. She wrote an acclaimed biography of civil rights activist Ella Baker, a paradigmatic figure who declared that strong people don't need strong leaders, and practiced a bottom-up philosophy that today has a powerful influence over the movement. And she helped found both African-American Women in Defense of Ourselves in 1991 and then the Black Radical Congress in 1998, critical antecedents to a black movement that today has a strong anti-capitalist and queer feminist orientation. Ransby has also spent recent years both advising and studying Black Lives Matter and the movement for black lives. Before we get this thing rolling, this left-wing podcast is a listener-supported left-wing podcast. In other words, supported by people just like you who make a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. We already give everyone free unpaywalled episodes, but contributors get more. $5 a month gets you access to our newsletter. $10 gets you a copy of either Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism or Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity. $20 or more and we'll send you a bunch of left-wing books. So please, if you haven't already, take a quick moment to support The Dig so that we can keep this thing going strong over the long haul at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig.
Okay, here's Barbara Ransby, a professor and director of the Social Justice Initiative at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and the author of Ella Baker and the Black Freedom Movement, and the book that we'll be discussing today, Making All Black Lives Matter, Reimagining Freedom in the 21st Century, out now from University of California Press. Barbara Ransby, welcome to The Dig. Thanks so much for having me, Daniel. To start off, could you give an overview of the key groups from the Dream Defenders to BYP 100 this in this constellation of organizations whose story you're telling in this book? And also, we should clarify up top the difference between Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives. Sure. Yeah, I think that um, that sort of mapping is really important because a lot of folks sort of collapse all the organizations that have been involved over these last four years or so as as a part of Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter started, I think, as most people know, as a hashtag. It was conceived of by Alicia Garza, Opal Tometi, and Patrice Kahn Colors. Um, and then it evolved from there. I mean, it was it was a term, it was a slogan that resonated for a lot of people. But for uh, for about a year, it was really not much more than a slogan uh, and a hashtag. And then the uprising in Ferguson happened in August of 2014, and people really gravitated to and embraced that slogan. So the slogan has been kind of rubric for the movement. But under that rubric have are many organizations. Black Lives Matter Global Network is one of those organizations, uh, which is founded by the three women I just named. Then there are organizations like Black Youth Project 100, which comes out of the murder of Trayvon Martin in 2012 and the acquittal of his killer, George Zimmerman, uh, the following year. And that's a group of uh, young African-Americans and, and Black people from the diaspora who are under 35. And they organize through a Black queer feminist lens. So they're very clear about their politics. They're very unapologetic about their focus on black organizing, but also their um, their critique of various systems of oppression. Then there's a Dream Defenders in Florida, a group that also came out of the Trayvon Martin moment. Um, they are doing an amazing campaign now called the Freedom Papers Campaign that is really trying to push for voting rights for people who are incarcerated, trying to put more checks and controls on the cops um, and hold politicians accountable. So, so those are just a couple of the organizations here in Chicago. There's a whole list of organizations from Asada's Daughters to uh, Black Lives Matter Chicago to Good Kids Mad City, um, and, and the list goes on. So we really are talking about a large community of organizations, some of them founded before Ferguson, but a lot of them emerging out of Ferguson. Uh, the Movement for Black Lives, that's a term and an organization. It's actually a coalition of many of the organizations that emerged out of the Black Lives Matter movement. The ones I just named, Freedom Inc. in Wisconsin is another organization. Southerners on New Ground is another organization out of uh, Atlanta and really throughout the South. So there are a number of organizations in this larger coalition, the Movement for Black Lives, uh, which is really the organization that has been propelling forward a large uh, movement building effort. One thing I'd like to better understand is the relationship between, on the one hand, these various organizations and the politicized, skilled cadre that make up their their leaders and organizers, and on the other hand, the the masses of ordinary people who surge into street protests 
in ways that organizers can attempt to shape but can never call into existence on their own. Mm -hmm. In other words, explain a bit about how these organizations root themselves in and relate to their larger social base in Black America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, we use the term cadre in different ways. I mean, there's a you know pretty precise use of it. And some of these organizations are actually not cadre organizations in the sure. sort of old-fashioned sense of a very disciplined uh, organization united around a very precise ideological analysis. But they are, you know, they do have a core of committed uh, leaders who are thinking strategically, who are grounded in a certain kind of worldview um, that is evolving. Now, there are those folks who, you know, basically are movement builders and organizers uh, 24-7. And then there's folks who uh, engage in demonstrations and vigils, have participated in spontaneous uprisings. Some of those folks have become professional organizers, if you will, but uh, but many of them have not. And I think that's, you know, typical of the relationship between spontaneous protests and more deliberate organized protests. Now, what's the relationship between the two? I think there's a couple ways to look at that. One is that um, the both cadre organizations and the disciplined uh, organizers who aren't cadre per se, prepare for moments like Ferguson, in a sense, analyzing how power works in our society, looking at ways in which people resist, keeping a finger on the pulse of what people are mad about, and thinking of different scenarios as they might play out in terms of what uprisings often give rise to. I mean, uprisings, there are often uprisings, right? There are often small and large rebellions in different places around the world. They don't uh, always lead to a sustained movement. So I think when you have spontaneous uprisings and then you add organizers to, to the mix, people who are figuring out how to how to extend the reach of that uprising, uh, how to encourage those uh, people who came out in anger spontaneously to actually make a long-term commitment to the work. Those are some of the the variables I think that go in or some of the some of the aspects of the relationship. There is one way in which sometimes organizations, either cadre organizations or others, can be behind as opposed to next to in front of you know the the impulses of of the masses of people. So you know there's ways in which sometimes organizations come down and come out and tell people, you know, calm down, tone it down, you know, don't misbehave, don't be disrespectful, don't be uncivil. And then there's other ways in which people understand the kind of righteous rage that people feel um, in the face of, you know, continued state violence. Um, and they respect that. They um, figure out how to extend that once the, the immediate uprising uh, dies down. How have you seen that dynamic play out in two of the higher profile incidents, the uprisings in Fer- Ferguson and in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. The Ferguson uprising is interesting. I mean, there are or- new organizations that emerged out of uh, Ferguson. Uh, Millennial Activists United uh, was one. Lost Voices was another. Uh, but then there were longstanding organizations like the Organization for Black Struggle, led by Jamala Rogers and uh, Montague Simmons. And those organi- those organizations had been doing steady base building, uh, political education, community building long before uh, Mike Brown's murder in August uh, 2014. And it was really people like Jamala Rogers, who a lot of young activists uh, looked to when when the Ferguson moment happened. At the same time, you had new people, young people come into the work who really had very little political experience. They were angry. Uh, They felt a new sense of uh, empowerment that other people were angry with them in the streets at the same time. And so I think there was a real convergence of 
mature, disciplined leadership of OBS and the energy and passion and commitment of young people who were, uh, you know, really kind of drawing a new line in terms of what they were no, no longer prepared to accept. And in Baltimore? Baltimore, yeah. Yeah, Baltimore. You know, I write about Baltimore um, as an example of the ways in which this movement has rejected both the politics of respectability uh, and this um, myth of post-racialism. So young activists were, not just young activists, they were, they were activists who were of all ages, but young people were in the forefront. But in Baltimore, after the death in police custody of, of Freddie Gray, massive protests uh, erupted. And organizers were clear, seemed to be clear in their speeches and their rhetoric and their slogans, that this was an example of uh, systemic racism, institutional racism, even though uh, half of the police who were involved in Freddie uh, Gray's um, death and the mayor uh, were black. So it didn't matter that individuals were, um, were, were black. It mattered that they were a part of a larger system that oppressed poor and working class black folks. So that was a very, I think, important uh, moment. And, you know, you had leaders who came out and said, you know, we have to uh, protest peacefully. We have to be polite. We have to go through the system. We have people in the system who will work for us. Um, And then there were folks in the street who were just rejecting that because their experience um, did not mesh with that analysis, right? People had been in power and had not been keeping them safe, had not been uh, meeting their economic needs, had not been respecting their humanity. So Baltimore was really significant in terms of combating this idea of post-racialism, combating uh, the strategy of respectability politics, and also an interesting fusion of uh, new activists and old activists. Organization Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle uh, is one organization that has been very important in Baltimore, as well as organization Baltimore Block. So those organizations had been lobbying around and protesting around issues before Freddie Gray's murder and converged in various protests, you know, during the uprising with new forces that came out in the streets. One thing that really stuck out to me in your book is that you detail the names and tell the stories of just an enormous number of activists and organizers that most people have never heard of. And you wrote a book about Ella Baker, obviously, who famously said that a strong movement doesn't need strong leaders. Explain a little bit about the method you adopted which mm-hmm. see, as a scholar, which seems pretty deliberate, mm-hmm. and how that reflects what you see as the best in Black Lives Matter and in any social movement. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I've been... Um, very hopeful about is the is the approach to leadership. And it's not perfect, right? I'm going to say that too. Uh, so I don't want to romanticize the movement for black lives. But, but one thing has been an emphasis on a certain style of what I call radical democratic leadership. Uh, it's a style uh, and an approach embraced by Ella Baker of emphasizing local leadership, emphasizing uh, decentralized leadership, and em- emphasizing the importance of having people who are often marginalized in our society, in our communities, um, as as the voices that need to be at the center of any movement uh, for resistance. So I have written two biographies, one of Ella Baker, another one of, of Aslanda Robeson. And as a historian, I sort of chose biography as a genre that was both accessible, but also um, giving us a kind of access to history that we sometimes don't get. Like history is not just big events that occur or larger than life personalities that make those events occur. It's ordinary people uh, sometimes doing some very extraordinary things. And so I think we see that in every 
social movement that emerges, those that those that succeed and those that don't. And so in this, I wanted to talk to people on the streets of Ferguson. I wanted to talk to some of the activists who had not become famous as a result of this, who weren't on CNN, who weren't in the New York Times, and ask them, you know, what the movement meant to them, how it changed their lives, you know, why they chose to get involved, um, et cetera. And so I feature some of those people um, in the book. Um, and some of them have, most of them have continued to be involved. I talk about uh, Alicia Saunier in Ferguson, who was a student, was about to go into her freshman year of college, and uh, was really transformed by the uprising in Ferguson by the internal problems within the movement, uh, opened her eyes to a lot of things, but really more importantly, the strength of, of collective action. And so she really has become an organizer and is pretty committed to this for the long haul. There are a number of other people in other cities uh, who have similar narratives. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's empowering. I think we often feel, you know, history is this big thing or political movements are these big things that are guided by forces larger than us. But, you know, we're a part of that force. So I think um, when you read about ordinary people in important social movements and their contradictions, their weaknesses, their doubts, uh, to me, it's empowering uh, as an activist to think that, you know, collectively, we can make social movements happen, we can actually uh, win transformative justice. Two of the stories that stuck out to me, in terms of ordinary people who were whose lives were changed by by getting involved with the movement, were uh, Rashid Aldridge, who came out in, to the Ferguson protests, and he worked at a car rental agency at the airport, at the airport, but had pr- previously been involved in the Fight for Fifteen campaign. Right. And then there was Kayla Reed, who was working as a pharmacy technician, and what was really poignant about their stories was that entering the movement for them and a lot of people wasn't just a matter of learning politics, but learning more about themselves as well. Can you say a bit about this dynamic that you've witnessed in terms of people changing their own lives in the process of dedicating themselves to changing the world? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Um, It's true in various kinds of reform struggles. It's certainly true in revolutionary movements. You know, some of my past activism was in the anti-apartheid movement, and I had the privilege of meeting uh, many people who were part of the Free South Africa movement, who were working in the African National Congress at the time, and who had really, you know, dedicated their lives to changing that country, uh, which they did in large part, sadly, you know, not in the ways that many of us had imagined. But, But that was kind of my first recognition of how much human beings, individuals change in the course of of making history. It was a powerful historical moment. And so, you know, I brought those sensibilities to my own organizing and activism, to my work on Ella Baker, and to my research on uh, the movement for Black Lives and the Black Lives Matter movement. So yeah, I mean, you know, there were people who were just living very ordinary lives, trying to survive, people who were dissatisfied with things, but really didn't know how they could make a difference. And then there's an explosion of protest, or there's the, you know, the final insult that that brings out the anger and in people and and brings people into the street. And through that process, through that sustained process of building community, of making decisions together, of taking risks together, of seeing victories and and setbacks, people change, you know, they change their view of themselves in the world, their sense of a relationship to power, their own power to make a difference in the world. So, you know, that's, that's pretty hopeful to chronicle that in individual cases. And, and the two people you named are good examples of that. You know, you described their, their stories. But Kayla in particular, Kayla Reed comes out as, as queer 
you know, in the context of the movement, because, you know, as Gil Scott Heron once said, you know, once, once one person uh, wants to get free, one group wants to get free, then the whole damn world wants to get free. And so it's a sense of that, that liberatory sense of possibility. Uh, You're changing one thing, and it it opens up the possibility to ask questions about uh, how we live or how our lives are restricted in, 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 in other ways as well. So that was certainly the case with Kayla. Well, on that note, a really core piece of your book is your documentation of how black feminist and queer politics and organizers have been at the center of this movement. Explain a little bit about why that is, particularly why it is at this particular juncture in a long history of black struggle that it was black queer feminists and black queer feminist politics that took center stage in such a powerful way for the first time ever, particularly in a movement whose public face in many ways is defined by the police killing of black men, young black men. Yeah, I mean, you know, first of all, I think uh, black feminists have been involved in struggles for a while. Black queer folks have been involved in struggles, black, you know, in the black freedom struggle for a while. It's just a question on uh, on what terms. And so uh, to have black queer feminist organizers at the very center, at the very forefront, unapologetically and out is a significant feature of this movement. I think it depends on a lot of things or it's influenced by a lot of things. You know, one is that what came before, right, from the Combahee River Collective in 1977, going through the Black Radical Congress in 1998, which I was involved in, which really was a moment where black feminists were featured alongside other black radical thinkers and organizers as an important strain of a black radical tradition. And that was a fight, you know, it didn't, it didn't just happen. So that was a, that was a political struggle. It was an intellectual struggle. And that set a certain tone following from that, you know, the abolitionist movement with people like Ruthie Gilmore and Angela Davis, both uh, unapologetic uh, black feminists who were also involved in a critique of the prison industrial complex, right? So uh, I think all of those precursors set the stage for the very confident young black feminist organizers that emerged out of Ferguson, but also who went to Ferguson. People had known these earlier organizational formations. They had read about them. They had met many of the people who were involved in them. um, And they felt emboldened uh, and really refused to be the Bayard Rustins of the 21st century. Bayard Rustin, of course, was a a gay black man who was involved in the civil rights movement who had to be in the closet much of his political career uh, because the movement wanted to put a certain kind of face on itself. And uh, that face of respectability didn't include uh, queer folks. So so I think it was an evolution. Um, I think it was also the agency and determination of, of, of the folks who were uh, who were involved. Now, what does a black queer feminist politic mean is a real question. It's not just having those bodies present. I think that would be a very uh, low bar, right? But it's to look at the radical inclusivity of black feminist politics, which have also, for the most part, been anti-capitalist, as well as anti-imperialist, as well as, you know, against patriarchy, homophobia, and misogyny. So contrary to folks who want to attack and critique so-called identity politics, and I don't consider my work to be identity politics, but I do consider it grounded in black feminist uh, politics. But contrary to those folks who see those political traditions as narrow, as um, single issue, as divisive, they really are radically inclusive because it's based on the notion 
you know, that multiple systems of oppression operate on our lives and our communities uh, at the same time, and that you really can't throw anybody under the bus if you're talking about transformative change. On that point, one important influence, of course, is the Combahee River Collective, which has really, at the same time as Black Lives Matter, really reemerged as something that people on the left are playing close attention to. Say a little bit about what lessons people are drawing from Combahee and what the process of its rediscovery has looked like. So last year, so I'm president of an organization called National Women's Studies Association, which is essentially feminist and women's studies scholars all over the country. And we did our uh, annual convention last year in Baltimore, and it was the 40th anniversary of the Combahee River Collective. So we had about 2,000 people who were on panels and doing workshops and plenaries talking about the meaning of, of the Combahee River Collective and, and the Combahee River Collective statement in particular. The organization was founded a little bit before the statement was issued. But uh, we had Barbara Smith with us and others. Kianga Taylor has written a book, compiled and edited a book, that focuses on the history of the Combahee River Collective. I think the anniversary sparked some interest, but I also think people were um, looking for documents and 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 that chronicle uh, the history of Black feminism. And the Combahee River Collective statement from 1977 was a really important manifesto, if you will, which outlined a kind of rationale and made the case for Black feminism uh, at the tail end of. Um, the, the, the Black Power movement in the late 60s and early 70s. So I think those are some of the reasons. Certainly some of those women are still with us, still active. Barbara Smith is still active. Uh, Margot Ray is still active. Uh, Demita Frazier is still uh, active. So those are some of the reasons. I think the document is is an important document that's been you know taught in many classes, but it's also circulated widely in activist circles. And I think as people do more political education, you know, it comes up and that history comes up and it's a reinsertion of that history in a larger history of radicalism and, and black radicalism in particular. In terms of the identity politics debate, which we've discussed exhaustively on the show, Kienga argues in her book on Combahee that the the term has come to often mean something very different from what the collective intended, something very narrowly about the politics of representation and recognition. Mm-hmm. Where where do you see the trajectory of the idea of identity politics over the last few decades? Right. I mean, some people use it as a pejorative, and some of the people who use it actually are talking about not just the narrow version, but they're also talking about the broad version. I mean, I agree with Kianga. I have a, a piece in that book. Uh, it was a version of a talk I gave for a conference she organized. When we talk about identity politics, uh, if we're talking about individual identities as determining our politics, right, that I'm just about getting black people elected or getting black people in power, or I'm just about uh, electing women because they're women. Um, It promotes a kind of essentialism about who we are uh, that, you know, came to the surface in 2016. Well, yeah, in, in a little different way. But I think that kind of essentialism is certainly not my politics. It doesn't lead us very far. In fact, it's a it's it's a trap and, you know, compromises our ability to see the larger structures of uh, oppression and exploitation that define most of our lives. Now, at the other end of that spectrum, though, let me say, some of this has appeared in Jacobin, there's an argument that any insertion of feminist politics, queer politics, race politics 
is dividing the working class and obscuring the class struggle. And I certainly don't believe that. I think that very short-sighted. I think it does a disservice to the the radical core of black feminist uh, politics. And I think it also is a, a misassessment of the history of class struggle in this country, which you know has never been monolithic and, and homogeneous. And we've all experienced class exploitation in different ways because of race and social location. And so if we don't understand that, then we're not serious about mapping the oppression that we've experienced and certainly not mapping the way forward. So I think there's a lot of ways in which the worst examples of so-called identity politics are often used to dismiss or minimize the importance of having a very strong stand against sexism, homophobia, uh, and racism in the society, but also in our movements. In terms of the class politics of the movement, the movement is not uniformly anti-capitalist, you write, but is strongly pervaded by socialist and anti-capitalist politics. You have a long history on the black left and helped organize the Black Radical Congress in 1998 in an attempt to reconsolidate the black left at a moment when it had really, in many ways, been pushed to the margins. What role has anti-capitalism and socialism played in Black Lives Matter? And where does this moment fit into the longer trajectory of the Black left in the past decades? I think um, inescapably anti-capitalist sentiments have, uh, you know, been uh, at the core of certainly debates within the movement for Black Lives. And I would say, if polled, the majority of people who have assumed leadership roles uh, in the movement for Black Lives uh, would say they're anti-capitalist. Now, many of them are not students of Marxism, would not necessarily say they are socialists, but they they all see the ways in which capitalism, you know, has compromised the, the humanity of Black people, Black poor and working class people. I think the significance of this movement, you know, and I describe it as challenging the politics of respectability. And I think once you do that, you have to begin to ask critical class questions. You know, the politics of respectability would argue, as, you know, Bill Cosby did pretty obscenely and Barack Obama did to a certain extent, you know, that people have to uh, conform to certain middle class norms of comportment and behavior and that, that some of the systemic problems that black people, poor black people face are actually their problems, right? Their individual and behavioral problems. And this movement in pretty much uniformly rejected that, you know, said that, you know, Michael Brown didn't have to be a saint to be a sympathetic uh, victim, that his life mattered, uh, whatever else he had done in that life. Similarly, with people like Eric Garner, who was, you know, living in on the margins of the economy, uh, in, in, involved in the informal economy, selling loose cigarettes to support his family, uh, similar to Alton Sterling, who was selling CDs out of the back, uh, out of the trunk of his car. You know, these people have been pushed out of the the formal economy. They're not necessarily degree <laughs> people with uh, college degrees who are going to church every Sunday, who, you know, speak in a very formal way. But they're people who were, you know, the, the core of the black community, right? And uh, the movement said they didn't have to uh, conform to certain kinds of middle class norms. Now, I think that's, again, very important in terms of a class analysis, because then we have to say, well, why are their lives the way they are? Which I think it gets us into a discussion of the current 
crisis of capitalism uh, gets us into a conversation about what capitalism has always done with black working class folks, which is you know push people to the margins when they're not needed, bring them back into the labor force when they are, use racism not only to divide, but to create a kind of hierarchy within the working class. And black and brown people have been on the bottom of that hierarchy. So, you know, it, you know just identifying the victims that the movement has has rallied around has been important. And of course, you know, the, the feminist piece is the organizers have also insisted on including women. And in, in some cases, women who are trans, women who are sex workers, uh, a whole variety of folks who, uh, who, who don't conform to this politics and very class-informed politics of respectability. The other issue, of course, is what is the spark? The spark is the repressive arm of the state. The, the 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 spark is the ways in which police have rode uh, roughshod over uh, poor black communities, and to confront the very legitimacy of state state violence, um, to me, is to really ask questions uh, about what what is a system that um, that that violence and that that police and military um, defend, and and it's a it's a system of racial capitalism. On that note, one thing I wanted to ask you about is. Police violence has long been a catalyst for urban uprisings from the long, hot summer of 1967 to Rodney King to recent years. Why is it, in your view, that of all of the systematic and brutal injustices that working class and poor black Americans face, that it is police violence that tends to be such a potent symbol for them all and to set off these huge upsurges in protest? You know, you figure what holds an unjust system together? Well, I I believe actually that culture and some of the ways in which injustice gets normalized in our daily lives is one way. But the other way is um, is through force, right? Is through through the use of police to maintain order and and if we perceive that to be an unjust order, that there's always a tension there. And so, uh, I was ten years old in 1967 when the Detroit Rebellion happened. And I remember being fearful of the tanks that were rolling down our street, not being fearful of my neighbors uh, who were who were many of them in the street. You know, police violence was a trigger for that, was a trigger for many of the uprisings uh, in the 1960s and continues to be so today. Um, and I think it's for that reason. I think the police are kind of the blunt force trauma that comes to bear when people decide to resist injustice. It happens when there are massive demonstrations and police have to or, or choose to or order to uh, break them up. And it happens in um, in the everyday maintenance of, of order in communities and, and, and ways of keeping people uh, under control. So that intimidation uh, is is part of what holds you know the pieces of of the system in place and i think when um when that breaks when there's a rupture uh, of that order you know anger comes out at a lot of things and and you know i think there is a way in which we could misassess the importance of the police too because there is this whole economic infrastructure that's in place that is a part of the grind of oppression and injustice that people feel every day uh, which is the co- correlation a lot of times between uprisings against the police um, and looting of businesses. Uh, I remember in 67, people wrote Soul Brother on their businesses if they didn't want them to be looted. And what that signified, I mean, I didn't understand it as a child, but what I came to understand later, what that signified was businesses that were seen as sort of predators in the community, businesses that would treat people disrespectfully, would bump up the prices whenever people got 
got welfare checks uh, on the you know first and the fifteenth of the month. I think it was. Those businesses were targeted. Uh, the things that people couldn't have because they weren't um, you know allowed to have a decent income, you know, as part of what people protest and uprisings as part of what they lash out against. Um, the police are the force that holds that uh, in check. That's some of the reason. One other question on on the focus on on policing that I've wondered about over the years is the way that it can both highlight and potentially obscure the fact that police are the front door to this system of mass incarceration. Um, and that even if people are arrested peacefully and placed gently into the squad car, then there's this invisibilized violence that's not caught on camera of people being serving mandatory minimum sentences, life without parole, etc. How how do you see the movement connecting the more spectacular public violence perpetrated by police to arguably the much more lethal and pervasive violence of, of the mass incarceration system that the police feed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, police are one link in that chain, right? People don't end up in prison, usually, unless they're arrested. Uh, but like you say, I mean, most people are not arrested in, you know, in a violent confrontation. Most people are arrested quietly. Sometimes I drive through the west side of Chicago, and there's, you know, young uh, black people being, you know, lined up along a wall or, uh, or, or in the street while their cars are being searched. I mean, this kind of uh, quiet everyday surveillance and containment is one role that the police play. And then, of course, yeah, all the all the laws about mandatory minimum sentences, the cash bail system, which there's a growing movement against, which is utterly criminal. People who are in jail for long periods of time only because they're poor, only because they're poor, only because they can't come up with the cash to get out uh, until they have a trial and and lives and families unravel. Uh, in the process, yeah, that's the 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 quiet, less dramatic uh, violence that that goes on um, in the current carceral state uh, that that we uh, that we live in. And how do you see movement organizers on the ground connecting these these spectacular killings, sometimes caught on tape, that catalyze mass action on the streets into this into work to dismantle the broader system? That it's uh, that it's the front door to. Mm-hmm. I've been a big advocate of political education within the movement, and I think people are very receptive to that. So there have been lots of retreats and workshops and think tanks that have really tried to drill down to to understand. I mean, I think we can't under you know we can't understand how the system works through you know a series of tweets or Facebook posts. I think we we have to read about experiences that that are not our own. Uh, we have to read about history. Uh, we have to uh, sit and try to wrestle with theory. And so I do see them doing that. And in the process, many people have uh, described themselves as abolitionists, uh, which, uh, according to Ruthie Gilmore, abolition is not just about a simplistic abolition of prisons, right? It's about creating a society where prisons are not necessary. In her view, in my view, that means um, uh, dismantling a capitalist system. So um, so I, I, you know, when people discuss the big picture, which they often do, uh, when uh, people are trying to figure out strategy. You know, they're talking about how do we link the immediacy of a particular outrage to the larger systematic and often, you know, invisibilized uh, forms of violence uh, that exist. So that that is a constant theme. And if we listen carefully to how how people are writing about the work, uh, how people talk about it in you know in public and and in uh, in movement circles, I mean, that understanding is there. 
there's this idea of non-reformist reforms, Andre Gortz. And I, I, you know, I'm not an expert, but uh, it resonates with me that organizers who have a long-term vision of social change, who really think that structural and systemic change has to be our, our agenda, that we have to select reform struggles that disrupt the logic of capitalism, that really uh, get at the core of uh, of white supremacy. And it's very hard to do, and it's sometimes um, not clear what kind of reforms will help us do that. Um, I remember when I was a teenager in Detroit, we had a campaign to get residency requirements for cops because we had an overwhelmingly white police force and overwhelmingly black city. And we thought, well, you know, if the cops lived in our communities, they wouldn't set us up, beat us up. They wouldn't be so brutal. And we, we got a black mayor and we got black cops and we were still getting set up and beat up. You know, so that was clearly a reform struggle, which on the surface felt like it would make things a little better, uh, which actually um, obscured uh, some of the uh, some of the violence that was um, ongoing. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Playing the Whore, the Work of Sex Work by Melissa Gira Grant, who I've interviewed twice on the show. The sex industry is an endless source of purient drama for the mainstream media. Recent years have seen a panic over online red light districts, which supposedly seduce vulnerable young women into a life of degradation, and New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof's live tweeting of a Cambodian brothel raid. The current trend for writing about and describing actual experiences of sex work fuels a culture obsessed with the behavior of sex workers. Rarely do these fearful dispatches come from sex workers themselves, and they never seem to deviate from the position that sex workers must be rescued from their condition, and the industry simply abolished, a position common among feminists and conservatives alike. In Playing the Horror, journalist Melissa Gira Grant turns these pieties on their head, arguing for an overhaul in the way we think about sex work. Based on 10 years of writing and reporting on the sex trade, and grounded in her own experience as an organizer, advocate, and former sex worker, Playing the Horror dismantles pervasive myths about sex work, criticizes both conditions within the sex industry and its criminalization, and argues that separating sex work from the legitimate economy only harms those who perform sexual labor. In Playing the Horror, sex workers' demands, too long relegated to the margins, take center stage. Sex work is work, and sex workers' rights are human rights. Playing the Horror, The Work of Sex Work, by Melissa Gerard Grant, from Verso Books. One tension in terms of the, the goals of the movement that, that, you identi- that you touch on a few times in the book is some ambivalence amongst activists in calls for the imprisonment of killer cops, since many are fighting for a world without prisons. And, and similarly, um, you, you, your book highlights the work of Incite Women of Color Against Violence as a precursor to Black Lives Matter. And Incite, which I think was founded in maybe 2001, around then, mm-hmm. yeah, um, is, is an anti-domestic violence group that also rejects the carceral state as a solution 
to domestic violence. Can you talk a little bit about this really complicated and I think rarely discussed challenge for both the movement against police violence and for Me Too um, in terms of, of how they often often seek justice from the very system that they oppose? Well, you know, I mean, that's the challenge of, you know, trying trying to be a principled person in an unprincipled world, right? We're, we're living mm-hmm. in and navigating a world not of our making. Uh, we don't have at our disposal the resources that the people in power do. And so um, to simply say we're against something, we have to have something in place that fills that void. And, and oftentimes we don't. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a tension um, in the movement. The way that I describe myself as an aspirational abolitionist, you know, I hope that my work is pushing us in the direction of that society that Ruthie Gilmore describes so beautifully and eloquently and Angela Davis uh, does in her book, uh, Our Prisons Obsolete. But we're not there yet. But I think there is an ambivalence uh, in, in movement circles to support or demand imprisonment as a solution to anything. I don't think people have actively come out and certainly people didn't come out and rally in support of uh, uh, (laughs) killer cops or say, you know, don't lock him up or something like that. Um, But also not being pulled into the trap of saying this is going to make us safe. You know, here in Chicago, we just had a conviction for uh, Jason Van Dyke, who was the cop that killed young um, Laquan McDonald, shot him 16 times, brutal, brutal murder, caught on videotape. Um, And I must say, I felt a sense of sadness, not that Van Dyke was going to jail, but that this is this is all we get as a resolution. I mean, I don't feel any safer. I don't feel like the young black people that I work with are any safer. Um, I feel like in a way, sometimes to have one cop go go to jail becomes a kind of uh, a way to give a facelift to uh, the more systemic problems, right? You know, the one bad apple uh, argument. Yeah, we, you know, we're a strong enough system. We're a just enough system. We punished a guy that did something bad. Now everybody, you know, now, you know, respect the rest of the, the, the cops that are on the street. When we understand that police violence is uh, is sort of endemic to the job, right? That uh, that that's 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 how police forces work, and sometimes it, it's very dramatic and 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 it's caught on videotape, but oftentimes it's uh, it's pretty routine and just as 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 brutal. So um, so I think the inadequacy of prison as a solution, even when people do really bad things, um, is important uh, is an important abolitionist message. And as Mariam Kaba, who's a now New York based, formerly Chicago based. Uh, abolitionist organizer uh, says, you know, to to call for abolition is not to say people should not be held accountable. And in fact, it's harder work to figure out, you know, how to engage in a process of restitution, you know, how to make victims of harm um, feel whole again and heal, uh, how to not have that person that committed the violence uh, be, you know, completely cast away. Uh, so, you know, so I, I think, you know, every human being has the ability to change and to make choices and to to confront bad past bad behavior and to make a different path for themselves. Uh, the prison system and the, the justice system in this country does not uh, encourage or incentivize that. It reminds me of when Tamir Rice was, was shot and killed and it was determined that the officer who, who shot and killed him followed policy mm-hmm. and a lot of people were obviously very upset by that, but my thinking at the time was that if he did in, indeed follow policy, then that's even more disturbing. 
Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, and we can take that even further. I think, I think oftentimes police murders are, you know, by the book, right. And, and they're given enough discretion, which says if they determine someone is threatening, they can use force. Uh, well, you know, what determines if someone's threatening is certainly a black body is more threatening in a racist society that has criminalized black bodies uh, than a white person doing the very same thing. So that's, you know, that's one um, um, variable, uh, what neighborhood someone is in, what the class profile is, how they speak, all those things, you know, weigh into the discretionary judgment of a cop uh, as to whether someone is likely to be armed and or dangerous and may have absolutely no correlation to to the reality. But yeah, I mean, a lot of horrible, horrible things happen by the book. You know, when we talk about criminal justice, and, you know, that's a term that is a little bit of an oxymoron, right, uh, in, in terms of our own system, there are a lot of things, you know, you can legally starve to death. Uh, you can, it's legal for a restaurant to throw out food when there's hungry people outside the door. It's legal for landlords to, um, you know, put, put locks on empty buildings when there are homeless people outside. I mean, that should be criminal in a more just society, right? The, you know, flagrant waste of resources when there's human need right in front of us. So, um, so you know, I don't... The exploitation th- of the wage labor system is entirely legal. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm a strong supporter of, you know, the Fight for 15, which is, of course, a limited demand in these times. But there's some pretty uh, amazing organizers in that movement who are exposing, you know, the the callous way in which, you know, corporations pay extraordinary amounts to CEOs and pay people, you know, essentially slave wages and tell them to, you know, go out and make make a way for themselves in the world. So, uh yeah, that's that's pretty immoral, but it's legal. So, you know, the line, you know, the correlation between uh, legality and morality or legality and ethics uh is 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 a very porous one. I want to talk about the history, the historical development of the movement a little. And from your book, it seems like there are a few key moments in the formation, in the movement's formation. First, there is George Zimmerman's vigilante killing of Trayvon Martin in 2012. Mm -hmm. Then there's the police killing of Michael Brown in 2014. And there's also Barack Obama's presidency, Mm. what you call the dialectic of Obama's victory, Mm -hmm. which was pivotal in radicalizing black activists because the post-racial promise of Obama's presidency quickly became contrasted against the police killings of black people, continuing poverty and inequality, mass incarceration. And I think your argument is that this set of contradictions expose the limits of the narrow neoliberal identity politics of representation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you explain how these three things, vigilante killing, police killing, and the Obama presidency worked over time to shape the movement as it took form? So, yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly right. Uh, I think it was Jelani Cobb, the the journalist who, who wrote an article and, and, and ended it by saying, you know, perhaps we had to elect a, bre- a black president to understand the limits of a black presidency. Uh, so I think a lot of the young people in Movement for Black Lives um, voted for Obama. Were hopeful about Obama. Uh, some of them maybe naively hopeful, and some of them, you know, just feeling like things would be a little bit better. But I, but I think the ways in which Obama failed to deliver, and and that could have been, 
you know, we shouldn't have been too surprised at that. But the ways in which he he failed to deliver, I think, really, um, you know, showcased the limit of of black or brown faces in high places. You know, I was struck by I think it was John Lewis. And I, I hope I'm not misremembering who it was, but I think it was John Lewis on a uh, radio uh, interview after Obama's election who said, you know, Obama is is what we uh, cross the Edmund Pettus, Pettus Bridge to achieve. In other words, you know, this sort of pinnacle of of black power. But of course, you know, no, you know, to to it's like the black politics version of the end of history. Yeah, exactly. You know, to to put a black individual into uh, a system predicated on white supremacy, predicated on exploitation and militarism and uh, imperialism, and not to change, not having that system change, you know, is 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 just, uh, you know, window dressing. And I think maybe it had to happen for people to to see that, uh, to recognize that. But certainly the, the, the movement for Black Lives uh, organizers were not hesitant at all to both criticize Obama but also to criticize, you know, other black elected officials and the Democratic Party. And so so I think that was a radicalizing moment. I want to ask about the concrete organizing work done in the movement. What of everything you've witnessed has been most important in terms of the nitty gritty of movement building and of building sustainable movement organizations? And what have you seen to be the greatest challenges? Well, there's so many challenges, uh, but I mean, I I'm not always or often a glass half full person. I'm always worried about what can go wrong. But I mean, I think uh, two things. One is on the national uh, level, the Movement for Black Lives has uh, been the impetus for the creation of a new coalition called the Majority, which has been meeting for almost two years now, and um, you know has 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 taken a number of actions, but. Uh, it involves about 56 organizations. It has as its center um, the leadership by uh, black and other people of color organizations and individuals. Uh, it includes people doing work around climate change, immigration, LGBT organizing, uh, labor organizing. Folks from the Fight for 15 are involved. Folks from uh, various teachers unions are involved. So I think that's very hopeful. In other words, it's building coalition, but with anti-racism at the center rather than this kind of nebulous notion of colorblind coalition, put our differences aside, you know, pretend we're all in the same boat. Um, I don't think that's a, a sturdy foundation or an, or an honest uh, assessment on which to build coalition. Similarly, in Chicago, there's a coalition that's affiliated with the majority called Resist, Reimagine, Rebuild Chicago. And we also have been meeting for two years. Organizations like uh, Organized Communities Against Deportations, Black Youth Project 100, Asada's Daughters, SEIU Health, uh, many organizations uh, have been involved, very different kinds of organizations. Um, and we've been uh, weighing in on a whole number of things from the Van Dyke trial to Fight for 15's effort to hold McDonald's accountable um, and a whole number of other issues. So I find those coalition efforts to be very, very hopeful. That It is difficult work because um, you have people who are, and I'll, this is a segue to your question about the challenges, um, it's difficult work because everyone is um, already immersed in their organizational campaigns. They're already um, immersed in a set of obligations and, and work that, that their organizations are involved in. And so coming to a coalition table, you know, who does the work, who holds it together, who navigates the differences, who 
uh, creates time for us to come to clear understanding about, you know, where we're coming from and what the priority should be. How do we create a sense of unity and camaraderie and fairness when we're all coming from very different positions of power? I mean, unions, not just different positions of power, but different kind of organizational formation. So unions might have, you know, tens of thousands of people in them with a low level of political unity, but an affiliation based on work. You know, union might have Trump supporters in their base. They might have teachers who are married to cops who uh, are not uh, just not 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 feeling the anti-police violence uh, campaigns. Um, on the other hand, you have more tight-knit groups like uh, Black Lives Matter, Global Network, or BYP 100, who have recruited people specifically because they agree with the political analysis and strategy of the organization. So, you know, so that work is very challenging, you know, how to juggle those moving parts, how to keep everyone invested, how to keep everyone relatively on the same page, and how to determine like what level of unity is principled unity. Because, it, mm-hmm. you know, you know, you can't have the common denominator be zero, right? You know, can't say, well, we all want a better <laughs> world and say nothing else, uh, because really, you don't have a coalition. So it's not going to include everybody. And sort of what is that line uh, between sort of principled and unprincipled compromises for the sake of unity? One thing that I've found to be lacking in my years of criminal justice reporting are multiracial coalitions against mass incarceration that go beyond more affluent whites who identify as allies to the black movement. A major bridge I think that's yet to be built is between the black movement against police violence and mass incarceration and white poor people who are also caught up in the carceral state. And I guess from my perspective, what's missing is something vis-a-vis mass incarceration is our coalitions along the lines of Fred Hampton's Rainbow Coalition. And that coalition, too, was 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 admirable, was ambitious and, you know, had some contradictions within it. I think when white people came to meetings, you know, in Chicago with Confederate flags, you know, some people with a, a broader political perspective hung in there and kind of saw beyond that. But a lot of people were like, no, uh-uh, I can't roll with that. So I, I appreciate that question. I think it's very real. And I think it's one of the reasons a lot of times, sometimes young black activists conflate uh, white privilege with class privilege, right? So I think there's a way in which even white folks who are poor and working class experience a certain kind of white privilege. Now, they may not, they're not privileged in the whole scheme of things of the larger society, but there's ways in which being black and poor, people are doubly compromised, are doubly stigmatized and and targeted and so forth. And, and so we have to understand those kinds of differences. Um, I'm hopeful about some of the work that's being done in the South. The Highlander Center run by this young woman, uh, well, she's one of the co-directors, uh, Ashley Henderson, which comes out of a a very progressive movement called Project South based in Atlanta. She's now running the Highlander Center and they're bringing lots of multiracial groups together with, you know, dealing with issues of class and economic injustice as well as, um, you know, ways in which police and prisons are impacting those communities. Southerners on New Ground is actually a queer-led, people of color-led multiracial organization uh, in the South that's also dealing with uh, with white poor people who who are impacted uh, by the system. Those are challenges because, you know, kind of the psychological wage that has been offered to poor and working class white people is, you know, you may be poor, but at least you're not black, right? And I think, you know, we've got to face up to people have internalized that. And so we've got to work against that and not just 
argue that we're in the same boat, not just gloss over it. We've got to, you know, walk into it, face it and struggle around it. You know, David Rediger's work, uh, Wages of Whiteness, which talks about the ways in which the making of the white working class in this country has really uh, was was really both a racial project and a class project uh, vis-a-vis uh, slavery and, and, and Jim Crow, which cordoned off black workers into a kind of substrata of the working class even after emancipation. So the idea that notions of whiteness were built into the emergence of white working class identity is something we have to actively work to undo. We can't pretend it doesn't exist. So I think that's the challenge there. But I think it's a challenge we can't turn away from. One thing that really jumped out at me from the book is how much interaction there has been between movement veterans like yourself, Kathy Cohen, and Robin D.G. Kelly, and the younger activists who are at the core of the movement, Um, which, which it's stuck out to me because I just did an interview with Max Elbaum mm-hmm. about his book yeah. Revolution yeah. in the Air on the New Communist Movement. Right. And one of his central arguments is that the New Communist Movement made so many of the mistakes it did because of the sharp break mm-hmm. between the new left and the old and that they maybe couldn't have could have avoided some of the mistakes they made if they'd learned from the old CP left. Mm-hmm. And what he's doing with the book is trying to talk to this new generation of young socialists so that we don't make the same mistakes that they did. Mm-hmm. And so it really stuck out to me that there seems to be an incredible amount of intergenerational cohesion and dialogue in Black Lives Matter. Can you mm-hmm. explain a little bit about how that came about and how that works and mm-hmm. what it, the results have been? Mm-hmm. And I'll say two things about that. One is, um, you know, there's a way in which we say don't make the same mistakes. But, you know, I mean, I'm a historian. So, you know, no no historical moment is, is the same. There are no two historical moments that are the same. And it's just like you can't step in a the same river at the same place twice because, you know, it's flowing. So young activists today have different challenges that we than we did. And so I don't presume to say, you know, here's how you should do it or here's, you know, here's the blueprint. I, I wish I wish I could say that. I try to, you know, transmit certain lessons. I try to share certain things. I try to be a sounding board. I often say this. I try to be a well-behaved <laughs> elder because I think there is a way in which you know, people come in with a kind of arrogance and um, presumptuousness that immediately people shut down. I shut down when, when somebody comes comes to me like that. So um, so I think there are mistakes that um, older activists have made in just how they relate to younger activists, kind of condescension or paternalism or maternalism. And I, I think that's that's not the way to go. On the other hand, I think there's a way we sometimes fetishize youth that, you know, young people are in the fore, young people are out there. We've got to support the young people. I don't support the young people that I support because they're young. I support them because I think they're on the right side of history uh, and we have a certain political affinity. And I think mm-hmm. that was Ella Baker's approach. You know, uh, Martin Luther King was closer in age to the young people in SNCC than Ella Baker, but it was Ella Baker who was really the intellectual uh, and political, um, you know, bedrock and mentor to many of, of, of the young people in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So I, so I think all those things are true. You know, in terms of the old left and the new left, as we talk about it in the 1960s, I think there was ways in which certain sectors of the movement in the 60s did, you know, fetishize youth. I think certain sectors of the white new left uh, fetishized youth um, and, you know, talked about, you know, mistrust of elders and, and, and mistrust of the older generation. I think some of those folks were talking about you know, powerful, wealthy white people and not talking about my grandmother, you know. So um, mm-hmm. there was, I, I even saw in an organization like the Black Panthers, which I was not a part of, 
but um, you know, because I was too young, but I, I witnessed in my community, I, I noticed a lot of interaction with elders, a lot of respect for um, elders. The Panthers had a program in Detroit where they would um, escort people, uh, older people to the bank when they got their security, their social security checks, you know, as a way to make sure they wouldn't be robbed. And, you know, there were many um, kind of intergenerational conversations and the like uh, uh, between uh, older activists who had been involved in trade union movement and so forth. And, for example, people in the League of Revolutionary Black Workers that emerged um, in the in the late 60s and early 70s. So I think different sectors of the movement, the uh, movements in the 60s and 70s had different relationships to previous generations um, um, of activists. I mean, I, I, I know the genealogy of the of the organizations that Max uh, is talking about. And I agree when talking about those organizations. But I but think like so often when we talk about the left, you know, the white left becomes a stand in for a whole lot of other folks um, solidly on the left who had a different experience. Um, that is people who are uh, part of black left organizations and formations. So, yeah. So, so that, you know, I mean, I feel there, I felt very welcome as not only myself, Kathy Cohen and Robin Kelly. I mean, we're all both activists and academics, but people like Makani Temba, um, you know, uh, uh, people like uh, Kai Lamumba Barrow um, and others who have been sought out for, their insight, Denise Perry. Um, some of these people are a little younger than me, so I don't know if they want to be called elders. <laughs> the people who are in their fifties, as opposed to in their thirties. Um, yeah, so I, I think I think there has been a lot of conversation across lines of difference. Um, I struggle sometimes within the movement too. I think sometimes uh, I've had people come to me and say, you know, give us advice. And I think there's, in the same way we fetishize youth, I think we can sometimes fetishize elders. Like, I don't always have the answers. I can't be, you know, rolled out in a crisis and dispense some wisdom and then, you know, rolled back <laughs> away. Uh, so, yeah, so I think, you know, kind of understanding we all have uh, limitations and we all have contributions to make based on positionality and what we've what we've lived through, but also what we've learned from that. You're not an oracle. <laughs> no. My last question is, where does Black Lives Matter, the movement for black lives, as both a set of organizations and a broader movement that is larger than any of these organizations, where does it stand now? It's been out of the news somewhat since Trump took office. And this moment of mass urban uprisings that so powerfully kept it in the national spotlight seems to have ebbed for the time being. Yeah, I think there's always an ebb and flow of uh, of uprisings and, and massive protests. But just to look at the kind of behind the scenes of, of what people have been doing, no one has retired from this. Uh, there is constant uh, organizing at the local level in many cities, Chicago, New York, Atlanta, Oakland. And then there's been a big debate about electoral work, when to do it, how to do it, what to do. Uh, there's an electoral justice project that has come out of the movement for Black Lives, which is which is interesting and hopeful. And and I think you know there's some some pitfalls that we have to be careful of. The Dream Defenders, for example, uh, endorsed uh, Andrew Gillum uh, in Florida, but I think they did so soberly and with full expectation that if he's elected, that they will have to do battle and and they'll have to struggle with him, not just to hold him accountable in that cliche way, but to push him, to challenge him um, and to criticize him because there's going to be limitations to what he 
he can do, what he will do. And so movement has a different role to play. I think part of what I've appreciated about the electoral impulse within a lot of the uh, Movement for Black Lives organizations is that they've refused to be just cheerleaders for candidates in the electoral work, which I think is good. I don't think we should ignore it. I don't think we should be purists and say, you know, it's lesser of two evils. We're not going to dirty our hands. We're not going to deal with it. You know, Mm -hmm. voting is voting and electoral work is one part of a larger, um, you know, strategy for change, but just sort of falling in and mindlessly following the the corporate Democrats is certainly not going to not going to get us very far, but I I think that's um, that's very clear to this this crop of organizers. Well, Barbara Ransby, thank you very much. Thank you, Dan, for having me, and and good luck with the show. It's a really important space for these kinds of conversations. Barbara Ransby is an historian at the University of Illinois at Chicago and the author of Making All Black Lives Matter, Reimagining Freedom in the 21st Century, out now from University of California Press. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that police are office holders of the state whose purpose is to manage the state in opposition to civil society, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week, often twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also does that is you spreading the word about the show to other people. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going strong. Mm-hmm.